All right, I wanted to give you a little um, brief insight into the fun conversations you could expect if you came and hang out with our family in the Thomas household. So one evening, not that long ago, just in the last week, um, we were sitting in the lounge room together, the little kids were in bed already, and I'd made a cup of tea. Caleb and I were sitting on the lounge having deep philosophical discussions about some movie that we'd watched. Kath was working on her laptop, probably taking registrations or something for hands and feet. And suddenly, an impromptu game of would you rather began. Um, I didn't initiate it, neither did Caleb. <laughs> the only other person in the room suddenly, randomly, said, would you rather die suddenly? And I was thinking, did I do the washing up tonight? Or <laughs> they, did I remember to put that load of washing? Would you rather die suddenly without warning, it was getting better, or would you rather be given six months to live and then die? All right. So just for your information, anyone there who thinks that we Thomases don't have fun, right? <laughs> you are sadly mistaken. This is the sort of riveting conversations you could have in our lounge room. I won't worry about boring you with all the discussion that took place after that, but I wonder if you're already thinking about that. Would you rather die suddenly without warning or have six months given to you and then die. Because the reality is, death and the life that we must live before that date is a reality or a truth that we must all face. Death and the subject of death is somewhat, in the Western world, in our Western culture, a fairly taboo topic. We, we feel uncomfortable speaking about it often. But none of us know the date that will be inscribed after that little dash that's going to be put on our headstone, right? But make no mistake about it, that little dash will one day have a date inscribed after it. We will all die. It's ironic that I think that death is the only great certainty in life. So the question that I want to ask is, how would your life look? How would your life look if you knew the days that remained? If you knew the days that remained, how would your life look? Look, would you live life differently? There's a um, psalm, Psalm 90 and verse 12. The psalmist says, Teach us to number our days carefully. I think I've got a slide here, Sandra, for it. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. I wonder when was the last time you numbered your days? Does numbering our days give us a sense of the brevity of our life, the, the fast pace of this life? What would you prioritise if you had six months left? I numbered those days. That's 182 days. 182 days to cement your legacy before the grave. How would you use them? 
What about 31 days? 31 days. What about seven? But we don't know, do we? We don't know. All we know is that we've been given today. The fact that you're sitting here and still breathing means that you've been given now. It's really even a bit of a stretch to say that we've been given today simply because we don't know if we'll see tonight's sunset or not. I told you we have fun conversations, (laughs) all right? Today is the first part of a two-part series that we will look at Jesus' last week before the cross. Easter isn't far away. We just talked about the Easter services that are coming up. Easter isn't far away for us. So I thought it would be good for us as a church just to simply pause for two weeks, two Sundays before Easter, and to look at how Jesus used his last week before the cross. He had walked this earth for 33 years. That's 12,053 days. We're still counting our days. His public ministry had lasted three years, about 1,088 days. But now, he has just seven left. How would he spend them? Jesus knew that his time was coming close. He knew. Everything that happens in this last week of Jesus' life before the cross has the the shadow of the cross laid very heavily over every conversation, every event, every movement of his. I'm interested in what Jesus has to say in this last week, these last seven days before the events of Good Friday. In particular, as I read through the Gospels and I was thinking about this, it became quite obvious to me that Jesus had two very different environments that he spoke into in significant ways. Firstly, Jesus had a lot to say in the public arena. He taught in the temple every day. Every day in this last seven days, he taught. He interacted with the crowds that were around him. Especially, he interacts with the religious leaders who were becoming increasingly triggered by the fact that Jesus was in Jerusalem. Things were escalating. It was snowballing. I think it would be really good for us to pay close attention to what Jesus had to say publicly, which is what we're going to be looking at today. But the Gospels also record some especially significant conversations that took place privately during this week. Intimate moments with really close friends and followers. I'm interested in what he has to say to them. What is it that Jesus prioritizes in those conversations? But that'll be next week. Today, we begin with living publicly, living publicly under the shadow of death. And what I've done is I've selected three conversations, three interactions that happened publicly during this week. And they're all recorded by Luke. So you can grab your Bibles, open them up if you haven't already, find the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to turn to his Gospel account, his reflections and his um, recollections of Jesus' life. And we're going to particularly focus from chapter 20. And we'll also look into chapter 21 a little bit. So Luke chapter 20. And what we're going to do is just take each reading on its own and we'll link them together and see what the Spirit might be drawing our attention to this morning. Luke chapter 20. I'm going to read from verse 9 to 19 as our first reading from the Christian Standard Bible. You can follow along on the screen if you don't have your Bible 
with you, but I'd prefer if you were reading your own Bible on your own lap. Luke 20, verse 9. Now began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to say, uh, so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmer saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, when the crowd heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them but they feared the people now that's the first reading that i want to focus on this one i want you to reflect on so here's what i've embraced uh here's, here's what i've titled this point for you okay the first point is embrace the sun embrace the sun all right a steward is not a king I want you to be thinking about that. Embrace the sun. This is Jesus' point. Some of Jesus' parables were and are difficult to understand. But not this one. <laughs> Jesus was being very plain and very blunt. Very to the point. Especially if you were a scribe or a Pharisee or a religious leader standing in the crowd that day. Jesus was, I think, looking around the crowd as he told this parable. I imagine him pausing as he looked around. Now, let me tell you a little thing that I don't do when I'm preaching very often. I have found that it becomes really uncomfortable for listeners if I stand and stare at someone in the face for too long. Doesn't it, Angela? <laughs> so I don't do that when I'm preaching very much. I tend to flick my eyes around, front to back, side to side, try to look this way, that way on occasion. Makes things a little bit more comfortable in general. I, I imagine Jesus telling this story and leaning forward and just looking at people in the face, particular people in the crowd. It was painfully obvious to certain people in the crowd that Jesus was addressing them. What was his point? I think it's really important that we follow the analogy here that Jesus is making in his parable. Right? Did you get it? A man plants a vineyard. He has a farm, a block of land. He plants a vineyard there. A vineyard that is meant 
to bear fruit. It's meant to have a harvest, right? But he doesn't need to or want to, for some reason, work that block of land himself. And so he hires other men. He hires tenant farmers to work that vineyard on his behalf. Pays them to do so. They have a job and a responsibility to answer to the owner of the vineyard. They were meant to treat the vineyard well, but not as their own. The vineyard belonged to another, the master of the vineyard. That's the first thing that we see from this parable. It has a very clear analogy to the people in Israel. It should do to us as well. When Adam and Eve plunged humanity into perpetual sin, perpetual rebellion against their creator, God enacts an ancient plan of redemption. The entire world is God's vineyard. And from that vineyard, God is cultivating a great crop, a great harvest of restored souls to himself. But he entrusted that great harvest to a chosen people, to a people that he'd set aside and said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through this chosen people, the entire world would experience the blessing of restored relationships with their creator. This vineyard, this mission was entrusted to stewards. Leaders who were, were meant to bring the harvest in and present it to the master. That's what was meant to happen. So going back to Jesus' parable, it says that the master of the vineyard sends a messenger, a servant. The first messenger was sent on envoy from the master to collect the fruit of the harvest. What happened to him? Oh, they beat him. They flogged him. They threw him out of the vineyard. And so the master sends a second. He too was beaten and rejected. Yet another was sent. But with the same result as the previous two. Right? To reject the servants is to reject the master. The stewards had grown comfortable in their role. Resented the authority of the rightful Lord of the vineyard. And again, we can go back to what Jesus is doing here and what he's unfolding for this crowd. God had sent prophet after prophet. He'd raised up priests and kings. All of them calling the people back to their master and to their Lord. Calling the people back to a a pure heart and a restored relationship with God. And yet, prophet and priest and king had all been beaten, all been rejected, all been killed. Israel would not listen. So Jesus' parable continues. The master says, what should I do then? I know. I'll send my beloved son. Surely they'll recognize him. Surely they'll respect him. But they did not. They would not. Instead, far from not realizing who had been sent, that it was the son, they immediately recognized him. This is the heir, they said, didn't they? Hey, this is the heir. And thus their own plan was enacted. If we kill the heir, 
There will be no inheritance left. No one to pass the vineyard on to will receive it, is what their plan is. The stewards conspire to kill him in a desperate attempt to position their own claim of authority on the vineyard, their own autonomy from the master. They were not content to simply be stewards of the vineyard. They wanted to be lords of the vineyard. They wanted to be the king, right? So they killed the son. So what was Jesus saying to the scribes and the priests of his day? And is there a message that we must hear? In our time, the warning is clear. Jesus' warning is clear. A steward is not a king. We must embrace the Son. We must embrace the Son. Jesus' parable continues it does not go well for those who reject the cornerstone of God's kingdom. It does not go well for them. All right. For those who try, for a steward who desires to rise above being a servant to the king, who rises up and says, we'll, we will take the throne, we will be the masters. Jesus says, beware, beware. Jesus' parable is very clear. He's saying, listen, the master's coming. The return of the king is near. Ready to reward his own and to punish those who've hindered the harvest. In very plain language, God is working to redeem a great harvest for himself in this world. He was then and he is today. God is working his great plan of redemption. The gospel is going out. We, as his people, entrusted with that message here in Raymond Terrace, we must know God is working to redeem a great harvest for himself. We live in his vineyard. And if you think that God's kingdom is for your benefit, if I think that God's kingdom is for my profit or for my prosperity, then we need to hear what Jesus is saying this morning. It's beware. If you feel that the blessings of God are for you and for other people who are like you, if you, even inadvertently, are sabotaging what God is doing in this world for the sake of your own position and your own comfort, beware. Because the return of the king is near. And Jesus' story is blunt. You either join his cause or you will be swept aside. One of my favourite themes in um, J.R. Tolkien's Return of the King, which is the third part of a trilogy of stories better known as Lord of the Rings. And if you've read the books or watched the, the movies, um, you may remember that there's an interaction between the two, one very key character, Gandalf. Um, and a man by the name of Denethor, who is a steward of a kingdom called Gondor. Um, Tolkien, I think, draws very heavily on this powerful biblical theme of the steward and the king as he 
develops that storyline. And uh, Gandalf has already explained to his traveling companion, who you see kneeling beside him there in the picture, as they walk into this kingdom and they see the, the, the white tree, which is a symbol of the, the nation. And Gandalf says to him, yes, it's the white tree of Gondor, the tree of the king. Lord Denethor, however, is not the king. He is a steward only, a caretaker of the throne. And then, as in this scene, Gandalf engages with Denethor, the steward of Gondor, and offers him wisdom and counsel, this is Lord Denethor's reply to Gandalf. He says, Do you think that the eyes of the White Tower are blind? I have seen more than you know. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor, and with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh yes, word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I tell you, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship. I will not bow. So for those who have ears, let them hear. There are echoes of this story in the stories that we tell, like the story Tolkien did, but it starts here in the story that Jesus told. His point is, embrace the Son. Embrace the Son. A steward is not a king. The true king returns at any hour and we must be ready to meet him. Reading number two follows on from that one. Luke 20, this one's a much shorter one. Verses 20 to 26. We know that those in the crowd, the scribes and Pharisees, knew that Jesus was telling that story against them. They got the point. It says that they wanted to, to lay hands on him that very hour. Like if the crucifix could have been then, that's when they wanted to do it. They were infuriated. Verse 20. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. Things were snowballing. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Here's the question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. It's the common coin of the era. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's. They said, well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Here's the second point from the second conversation. Give God what he deserves. And don't confuse your accounts. All right, this setup was in direct response to Jesus' warning to the priests and scribes of the established religious order. These guys were out to box Jesus into a corner. I think there are some valuable lessons to be learned here about being honest in your taxes. I think there are valuable lessons here to be learned about being honest in your financial dealings. 
But that isn't really the primary point of what Jesus is saying here. You see, these stewards that we we've picked up on, Jesus was likening these people to the stewards. These stewards were like a dog that sounded fierce but had no teeth. When it really came to doing anything with Jesus, they were a lot of noise, but knew that they had very little bite. So they were trying to get Jesus into trouble with the Romans. The Romans were the ruling authority of Israel. They, on the other hand, were a very big dog, which had very big teeth. So if they could just get Jesus into trouble with the Romans, then that would be good. They wanted to accuse Jesus of provoking civil unrest against Caesar. They wanted to gather proof that he was raising up an army of rebels against Rome. And then Rome would crush him because that's what Rome did. Any rebel, any uprising, Rome would come down like a ton of bricks and crush it before it started. So this is the, this is the motivation, right? Let's get Jesus in trouble with Rome. This was a trap. But I want you to look at how masterful Jesus is. How gracious and how wise he is and how shrewd Jesus is. Show me a denarius. Verse 25, verse 24. They're asking the questions. They're pretending to be righteous. Did you see how beautifully they framed their picture? Oh, Jesus, we know that you're amazing. You're so wise and clever. And he's like, you don't know anything yet. (laughs) Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were pitting responsibility, civil responsibility to Rome against their long heritage of being a people who only recognize God. If only that had been the case. His response, show me a coin. Anyone got a coin on, their, on themselves today? Anyone got coins? Anyone carry coins anymore? Not much. If you do, pull it out. Have a look on it. One day soon, Queen Elizabeth's face is going to disappear off our coins. And we will have King Charles. May God save his soul on the back of our coins. It's always been the case. Our sovereign rulers have always been stamped onto our currency to show who it belonged to. This was the case in Jesus' day as well. Show me a denarius, show me a coin. Someone got it out of their pocket, held it up, and Jesus says, tell everyone, whose image and inscription does it have? They look at it, well, Caesar's. It's got Caesar's inscription on it, right? Great. Then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That would have answered the question, wouldn't it? Wasn't that the question? Should we pay taxes to, to Caesar? He could have just said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. But he doesn't just say that. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right? The point is crystal clear. Again, give God what he deserves. Don't confuse your accounts. Jesus could have simply said, yes, you should pay your taxes, but he doesn't stop there. Jesus takes the opportunity to drive his point home even further. Do you remember what the last interaction was about that we just read? 
a master who came to his people, to his tenant farmers, and said, give me what I deserve. Give me the fruit of the harvest. And they said, no. We want it. And now Jesus is saying again, give God what he deserves. Give Caesar what he deserves, but give God what he deserves. So Jesus takes the opportunity to drive the point home even further. Right? Don't hold out on God, Jesus is saying. Don't hold out on God. Give him the harvest that is rightfully his. Don't become so invested in this world that everything that you have gets poured into the here and the now. Is what Jesus is saying. Right? Remember, the king's coming. The master's coming. He's going to call his stewards to account. So what will you have to show him? What will you be ready to lay at his feet? And Jesus is saying, of course, of course, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But don't let that be where the full stop finishes in your life. That your life is all about investing into this world, investing into your comfort or investing into your security or something. He says, no, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Yes, but give to God what belongs to God. We, um, we as people tend to live in extremes, most of us. And so either we become so invested in this world and we, short, we shortchange God. Or possibly, you can live so heavenly minded that you think that you're above the rule and responsibility of this age. You're above the kings and governments that have their rightful place in this age. That you're above civil responsibility in this age. And yet God makes it very clear that we should live at peace with our neighbours. Investing well in this world as representative of the king is not beneath the children of the kingdom. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But don't forget to give to God what is God's. That's Jesus' second conversation. Here's the third. Chapter 21, just four verses. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. So here's my third point, final point. Give God what you have. And don't confuse quantity for quality. Right, this text, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, is often turned to when we speak about financial giving in the church, about tithing. I mean, we haven't taken a tithe up today, have we yet? We will do. Um, we, we often turn to this passage when we talk about tithing. I think it's not wrong to do that. I think it's quite understandable that we could do that and should do that on occasion. But I think that maybe sometimes we fail to hear all that Jesus is saying in this passage here. All right, so look carefully at the scene for a moment. Jesus wasn't rebuking people who weren't giving. Did you notice that? Everyone here is giving money into the offering bag. What a lovely problem to have. Right? Jesus isn't trying to guilt trip those who might have just been shyly passing along the offering bag down the aisle without putting anything into it. Back when we used to carry cash with us, I can remember as a young guy at church and the offering bag would get passed around. 
And um, no one gave electronically. There wasn't such a thing. You just gave cash. And um, I learned a little trick off my friend that if the bag's going past and you didn't have any money to put into it, you just sort of put your money hand roughly on top of it, but jingle the bottom of the bag. <laughs> Sounds like a heap of money went into it. Pass it on. <laughs> We're going to get to why that's such a problem in a minute. <laughs> Firstly, if I'd actually be putting notes in there, it wouldn't have been jingling at all. I don't really think this is actually about much money at all. I don't think this point, the point that Jesus is trying to make is not really about the money. You see, the timing of this story makes me think that while this event is on the surface got to do with money, that there's something more going on here with the point that Jesus has been already trying to make. This is all happening in quick succession. So let's get Jesus' main point front and centre again and then we'll see if we can tease out some, I think, of the, the deeper applications from it. All right, I said that the, my point that I would summarise this is, is give God what you have. Give God what you have and don't confuse quantity for quality. All right, so, of course, it does have an immediate financial application. Some people are able to invest large figures of money out of the abundance of their wealth, but others are only able to give a small gift when the offering is taken up. That's what's happening in this little observation that Jesus made. The question is, which is better? The large gift or the small gift? Which is better? I guess that depends on how you look at investing in God's kingdom. We could start putting dollar figures against this and see how it stands up. What can we accomplish with $500? What can we accomplish with $5,000? As opposed to $5. Alright, let's just compare that for a moment. What could we accomplish with $5,000? As opposed to $5. How far will a large financial gift spread? How many lives will it touch? What quality of material could be bought? Or how many hours would that purchase for a gospel worker? Right? Isn't it better? Isn't it better? To have that $5,000 than just maybe some loose coins that jingle in the bottom of the bag. And again, I think it depends on who's doing the counting. Because as people, we usually value the metrics of growth. rather than what God values, which is often the metrics of grace. And in this case, two coins from the heart of someone who had almost nothing was a vast treasure in the eyes of Jesus than all the other mountains of gold that were accumulating in that treasury. Did you see what Jesus was measuring? It's there, it's in the story. Did you see what it was? It wasn't the financial value of the gift. Jesus was measuring the storehouse from where the gift originated. Did you see it? Have a look at it in verse 4. Jesus answers, For all these people have put in gifts out of, underline that, all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus. There's the, there's the storehouse. But she, pointing to the widow, out of 
her poverty. Jesus is measuring the storehouse from where the gift originated from. These people gave gifts and they gave them out of surplus. She gave out of her poverty. And she's put in all she had to live on. Others gave gift from what was left over in the budget. Did you see that? What was left over in the budget? But the widow offered what she depended on to live. Those two coins that she put into the bag that day represented more than the copper that they contained. Far more. Those two coins represented her security. They represented her future. Those two coins represented her tomorrow. Her safety, her stability, her independence, her hope. And all of those things she gave to God when she gave those two little coins. So this morning, I'm not going to ask you how much you put in the bag. I'm going to ask you where you take it from. From what storehouse do you give? What do you give out of? Your surplus or your dependence? One way to ask yourself this would be, is your tithe, let's just be very honest or very generous and say that that's going to be 10%. Is your tithe taken from your gross income or your net income? That's one way you can measure it easily. Does everything else get accounted for? Then when the week is almost washed away, do we scratch around in the centre console of our lives to see if there's anything left? as if our giving is of little more consequence than the $2 menu at the Macca's drive-thru. But I need to say again, give God what you have, but don't confuse quantity for quality. Because this is, this is about far more than finance. This is about your life. Remember, God is the master of the vineyard. We, we talked about that. The harvest belongs to him. We are simply stewards of God's great work of redemption that's taking place in this world, in Raymond Terrace, Madawi, Siam, Karua, beyond. And the first point was, we must embrace the Son. Right? We're, we're not kings here. We're stewards. Embrace the sun. Secondly, though, give God what he deserves. Right? We don't confuse in our accounts. We don't invest too heavily in this world. We realize that we have a responsibility here, but we must give God what he deserves. That's our second point. But here's the thing. We humans really suck at counting. We're terrible at it, at least counting the right things. Yeah. We either look at all the gifts that we have, the talents and the skills that we've accumulated in this world, and we confuse competence with qualification. Our hearts grow easily proud with all that we have to offer God. Right, that can happen. But let me tell you from personal experience and personal heartache that it has happened. But I think it's fair to say that most Christians here today don't always experience that temptation. Quite often it's just the opposite danger that we need to be aware of. Many of you feel as though you don't have much to offer. I'm not talking about finance here. You don't have much to offer the king that you don't measure up, 
that your gift is so small that it would be embarrassing to lay it before the God of this ages. Right, here's the thing though, right? God doesn't measure like we do. He doesn't measure like we do. God doesn't compare the quantity. He has such a different metric, a different way of counting. And so give God what you have. Just what you have. And don't confuse quantity for quality. Like, remember who we're giving it to. Jesus is the master of taking a lukewarm, packed lunch and turning it into a feast. So don't worry if you think that all you've got is a couple of soggy sandwiches to be able to offer him. Just give it all to Jesus. And then stand back and watch what he can do with it. But he will not fail you. The king is coming. We must embrace the son. Don't confuse your accounts. Give God what he deserves. And don't confuse quality for quantity. Just give God what you have. How should you respond? I can't answer that. One way you could respond is simply coming in prayer. Or sharing something with your church. Ways that we can just be with each other and hold each other accountable to live this life as stewards who embrace the sun and give what they have. So encourage one another. We're going to do so for a few minutes and then if there's something you'd like to share, a passage you'd like to read, something you've reflected on as we've been talking this morning, now's an opportunity just to do that for a few moments and then Ruben's going to come up and finish off with a song shortly.